Okay, good morning, Reach Montreal. Thank you again for having me join with you today. Let me fix this. My name is Jeff Wright. I'm a pastor here in the West Island with Church 21 West Island. We meet on Boulevard St. John, but we are sister churches together here in the area. And so it's just been awesome to go through this series with you so far. It's been an amazing series in Mark. And uh, so I'm, I'm just excited to take us into chapter eight. We're only halfway through, but it's been amazing so far. Um, God has shown us so much through Jesus, who he is, all about the way of Jesus. And that's the, the series title for you guys here at Reach is The Way. What is Jesus's way? How did Jesus go about the earth bringing the kingdom of God at hand and calling people to follow him and to follow his way? So we're continuing that today. Um, I'm a little tired today physically. We had a great neighborhood party yesterday as part of our outreach and our mission in Sunnybrook. We had about 50 neighbors come out. There's some significant conversations, um, but I'm relying totally on God's grace today to even carry me through. And I'm praying that he would bless the meditations of my, my heart and the words of my mouth as we all come to uh, the word today. So you can open your, your Bible to Mark chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 24 and end up in chapter 8 verse 10. So let me pray first and then we'll get started. Jesus, thank you so much again for this beautiful day. Thank you um, how great you are, God. And I pray, Lord, for our hearts and minds that we would just be overcome by your word, that we would love um, and be drawn to your word, that you would Speak to our hearts, please, Lord. And uh, again, bless the meditations that you've put on my heart, the words of my mouth. It's you, Holy Spirit, at work through each of us, in each of us today. Amen. So we're looking at these three chapters. If you look in your Bible, uh, not three chapters, but three passages, if you look here, we see a few different occasions. There's a Seraphonician woman and we see the faith that she has in verses 24 through 30. Then we see that Jesus heals a deaf man, and then we see that Jesus feeds a crowd of 4,000 people. This is the text we're gonna look at today. And what really stands out to me in this text that I, I wanna draw is I wanna take each of these passages one at a time and look at the elements that we see in each of these. There's, there's a lot of physical observations, external observations that stand out just in the words that Mark uses, but they all allude to a very important spiritual reality going on behind the scenes. So as we look at these, really, how can you see faith? How can you see God's grace? These are not tangible objects. We can only see the evidence of faith. We can see the evidence of grace. And so some of these passages are going to show us what are those, uh, how do we see faith? How do we know what faith is? How do we know what grace is and what it looks like? We're going we're gonna to take one of these at a time and, uh, and see what are these elements. But I'll start with this question that brings us into kind of the theme that I find here. What, when's the last time that you faced a crisis situation? If you take a minute to think, when's the last time you faced a crisis situation? You were confronted maybe by your own inability or lack or limit. When's the last time you faced despair? Despair is the loss or absence of hope. We all face these in life. For some, these are serious life-altering changes. Death and, and uh, um diagnoses of different kinds and life-changing events. For some, it's ongoing battle against sin, chronic suffering. It's things that aren't as evident, but they are ongoing. Despair is a key part of this life. And there's hope for us today in Mark chapter 7 and chapter 8. There's hope in the midst of despair. There is abundant grace for every need that God offers. God offers abundant grace for every need that you and I will encounter. So that's what I want to dive into today. I want to see how God provides for hope that we don't deserve. We're going to look at how he even 
hears our needs when we cannot speak. And God even knows the needs we haven't met and are still yet to come. That's the hope we have. Because even when we take a moment to think about the, the crises or the despair in our life, it's hard. It's hard, but there is hope. And that's why we're here today. That's why we're here to come to the Bible and find the hope that God has for us and see his abundant grace. We'll look at how does God offer hope to meet our needs and how do we receive the hope from God for our needs? How do we do this? How does God do this? And what does Jesus see in us that moves him with compassion for our needs? That's what we're going to see as we look at Jesus' way as he encounters people through the Gospel of Mark. And, and we'll look at these three examples in this passage to see the key role that despair plays in our faith as people encounter Jesus. It's crucial. It's not something we love to embrace, but it is essential for our faith. So let's, um, I don't know why I turned the page. I'm turning a page in my mind, so I turn the page down here. Let's start with a little bit of context because there's a lot of clues in here about the context where Jesus was. It says that he went to Tyre and Sidon. He was in the region of the Decapolis and a lot of these, the significance of these are lost on us. We don't know the geography as well, but there's an important factor here in the world of Jesus' day between the Jews and the Gentiles, and we're going to see that in this passage. So to give a little background on that, we have to understand that Jesus was Jewish. Jesus was born in the lineage of King David. He was a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. By every means, he was Jewish by culture and heritage and genealogy and faith. And uh, the world at this time was either Jewish or not Jewish. Another word for not Jewish would be Greek or Gentile or pagan. And so the significance of all of this is that the Jews were the children of God. They, those were the chosen people of God. God entered into a unique covenant promise with Abraham. And he chose these people that they would be his people and he would be their father. And he would bless these people and in turn they would bless the world through God's blessings. And God gave his people his laws and commands to follow him and to obey him. That's why we have the Torah and the prophets. That's the Old Testament in our Bibles today. It's all the laws that the Jewish people followed. But then when you fast forward to, to Jesus' time, we see that the people, the Jewish people, have, have arrived at this place where when you look at all the laws and commands of Scripture and realize our inability to obey God perfectly. Here's a holy God. How can we ever be a holy people when we are so prone to sin? Well, what the people had done and what we saw last week in the passage about the Pharisees and the different laws that they would add to God's word is that that's what they did. In order to keep from breaking God's law, they added new laws all the time to try to avoid breaking God's law. And it became centered on their efforts and their works to obey God. But as Mark pointed out last week, Jesus ends up saying, You're, you've become hypocrites. You honor God with your mouth, but your hearts are far from him. So even though they're trying to obey God's law, they've ended up so far from him. Now Jesus comes on the scene, and you would think, imagine yourself being a Pharisee, your, your life is dedicated to perfectly obeying and interpreting the scriptures, and then all of a sudden, the word of God becomes flesh and dwells among us. He, he lives it out perfectly before our eyes. He's fulfilling the prophets in front of us. Wouldn't that be amazing to see everything that I've been trying to do and could never do is being done by the Messiah who has come as the mediator between God and man. The word of God has become flesh. Well, they didn't love Jesus because as Jesus was obeying God's word, he kept breaking the, the, the laws of the Pharisees. Uh, you know, we saw that last week with the washing of hands and they didn't approve of the way that Jesus did things and they interpreted the Sabbath in different ways and that Jesus was breaking their codes on the Sabbath and things like this. So, they missed the mark completely. Jesus even says in John that you, you study the scriptures because you think that by them you have eternal life. 
but you've refused to come to me. It's them that bear witness about me, and you refuse to come to me that you would have life. So this is the picture of the day of the Pharisees. And so this is important for us to factor in because we see in verse 24 that Jesus arose from where he was. He went away and he came to the region of Tyre and Sidon. He was just, we see in the way of Jesus, his mission has been focused on the Jewish people. He has been walking among the children of Israel, giving them the bread of life, um, he's been proclaiming the gospel of God that there is salvation and forgiveness of sins through grace, through grace alone, by faith alone. And so um, he's been proclaiming this, but he's also been demonstrating the power of the gospel through his miraculous works, healing people, casting out demons, all of these things among the Jewish people. But now he changes the scene. He goes to the region of Tyre and Sidon, which were predominantly not Jewish. This is where the Gentiles, the pagans, the Greeks were. And so there's some different factors that come up in here, um, which we see right, right away. Especially when it says that he entered a house and he didn't want anyone to know. Jesus is trying to get away and get some respite with his disciples, get away from the pressure of the Pharisees, and yet he could not be hidden. You can't hide Jesus. His fame has spread around the, the world at this point, and uh, in the large area anyway, and he can't be hidden. So um, he went away, and that's where we encounter the Syrophoenician woman. So let me read this passage for us in, in its, just verse 30. So from there, he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon, and he entered a house and did not want anyone to know, yet he could not be hidden. But immediately, a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth, and she begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter, and he said to her, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. So as we take each passage at a time, we're going to look at the physical, outward expressions that we see in the verbiage that Mark uses. There's um, unique significance to the things that Jesus does and says, and that this woman does and says. And then we're going to look behind the curtain and see what is going on in this scene spiritually. There's a big physical significance, but spiritually, there's a, a greater reality going on. So if you just think with me about some of these the, the movement of this passage and we walk through it like a roadmap. We see that Jesus rose from where he was and he went away and he entered this house. Change of scene, Jesus comes. Movement of Jesus. And then we see the woman in this scene. She heard of him. She came to him. She fell down at his feet and she begged him. We see significant movement here. Jesus speaks to her a very unique parable, and then she responds to him. Jesus then responds, uh, replies with his approval and acceptance on her answer, and then she goes along her way. So, yes, we see a very interesting dialogue here. At first glance, this looks like it could be one of the most offensive things that Jesus could say. He's essentially um, calling this woman, she's, he's alluding to this woman as a dog begging for food. Is, some people have asked, is Jesus showing some kind of Jewish, Jewish chauvinism in this passage? But I'm not even going to really go down that rabbit hole. There's a lot to say on, on that. But I will say that no, emphatically no, Jesus is actually um, showing compassion to this woman and radical grace towards this woman who is very aware of her needs and her desperation, her despair. Um, and so here's the situation that we see this woman, just to explain it a little bit more. She's been suffering. 
Here's a, a woman, a Gentile, a Syrophoenician, so low class, low privilege, and her daughter has an unclean spirit. She's been suffering for who knows how long. And her suffering and her sin has left her with no one to help. I asked you about despair when I began. When's the last time we felt that lack or absence or loss of hope? That was this woman's reality. No hope to be found. But this despair becomes one of the crucial elements of the story. She is familiar with crisis. She's familiar with despair. But what gives this Syrophoenician woman this place in scripture is her response in the face of despair. So if we track through this passage, that's where we get to observe those things that I mentioned, the elements of faith, the elements of grace, these intangible but spiritual realities. We get to see them through these, this movement in, in God's word. So here we have Jesus come into this town. Um, we know that he's moving away from the pressure from the Pharisees. We know that he's been... Uh, proclaiming the gospel among the Jews, but now he's also bringing it to the Gentiles. This is what's um, significant in this passage, in this, in these, in this, uh, just the first verse, 24. And then we see the woman finally hears about Jesus. Here's what's special about this. This woman has probably heard, now that Jesus has come into town, she hears the news about this amazing person and all the works that he has done in Israel, in, in the Jewish areas. She's heard about the healings. She's heard about that this man can cast out demons. Well, my daughter has a demon, and this man can cast out demons? She's heard that he can heal and free and feed the poor and feed the people. And now he's come to Tyre and Sidon. Hope has finally entered the scene for this desperate woman. So she hears of Jesus is the first part. But then she comes to Jesus. She comes to him knowing as a Gentile woman that she has no grounds to approach this Jewish teacher. She has no ability or, or merit to come before him and especially to ask a blessing from him. The Jews and the Gentiles did not mingle they did not get along. The, the blessings for the Jews were not meant for the Gentiles at this, um, in this worldview. But what does she have to lose? She has nothing to lose, but she has everything to gain because she believes that if this man can heal anyone, then he could heal everyone. If he can cast out demons for the Jews, then I know he could cast out a demon for me, for my daughter. So she doesn't just come to Jesus, she falls at his feet. She comes with a posture of humility. It's very important that Mark put this in here. Each one of these clues speaks volumes to us that she didn't just hear of Jesus and come, but she fell at his feet in humility and then she begs him to heal her daughter. She begs, believing against all hope that he could offer hope. She's desperate. She's familiar with despair. But how she responds to despair is through faith. Her faith is, there's a faith that is born out of despair. When you lose all hope, when you know, my daughter needs to be healed. I am unable to help my daughter, how can I see the hope that I, I cannot have? By faith. By faith, she can hope in something that she cannot readily see. But here's where we come to this very interesting verse. One of the most interesting verses some have said in scripture is when Jesus speaks this parable, is really what it is, it's, um, it's a parable when Jesus says, uh, let's see, let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. Why would Jesus say something like this? It could have been very offensive. 
it could seem very offensive to, to call this woman a dog. But actually, it's probably uh, affirming what he already knows is going on as a logical conclusion in her heart. Here she comes. We've already seen that. She comes, um, falls at his feet, and begs for his healing. And so he's entering into her worldview by saying, well, isn't it, isn't it only right that I feed the children first and, and not to throw the bread to the dogs? But it also shows that this woman is so concerned about her child, but Jesus is concerned about his children. What about the children of Israel? This woman knows what it means to care for a child, and so does Jesus. He knows what it means to care for the children. He prioritizes his children, you could say. And, but he's also kind of asking, do you really know what you're asking for? How would you expect this to be done? He's kind of testing her. He's actually using these words to render, to, to make evident a faith that he sees inside of her and to kind of coax that out of her with this parable. Will she, will she have ears to hear what he has to say? Some, some have come to Jesus asking, how can I have eternal life? And, and he says, well, go and sell all that you have and then come follow me but it is too difficult to hear. But for those who have ears to hear, they enter in and find the hope that they are looking for. And so that's the meaning of this parable is kind of this um, approach of compassion to this woman. And you could get into the whole uh, study of this passage and see that there, this was a common saying among the rabbis that the people outside of the family of God are, are just dogs and they use this term for dog that's kind of like a street mongrel. But the term that Jesus uses here is actually kind of a, how do you say it? A nicer word, a domestic kind of animal, like Arlo, you know? Caleb's beautiful dog, Arlo. As he's kind of calling her this precious, um, this precious dog, anyway. But not gonna go all the way into that. But she replies, and here's what we see in her reply. The woman affirms Jesus' parable by responding um, to it. She enters into that worldview and addresses Jesus as Lord. She says, yes, Lord. She's not offended by what he says. She's affirming what he says. She, she says, yes, Lord. Referring to herself in relation to God as a dog to a master. She's not denying the Jewish heritage for Israel, who are God's children. But she has faith that the master of the house is also the master of the servants, the master of the children and the servants, the master of the children, the servants, and the, the household dogs. She is honoring him as Lord and master of all and referring to him as, as God. And... Uh, she believes, what would it be for you to do a healing for me? If, if, if I've heard about all the spiritual, the bread of life that you've been sharing with the Jewish people and seeing the rejection from the Jews and the Pharisees, yes, she says, but even the dogs under the table eat the crumbs. What would be a crumb for you would be all that I need, Jesus what would be huge for me is just a crumb in your eyes. So she asks for this help in the midst of her needs. She, God, Jesus uses this kind of presentation to, to reveal a full faith in her, faith in Jesus for the grace that she needs. And then that's where we see he responds with grace. He replies and says, for this statement, you may go on your way. Your daughter, the demon has left your daughter. He speaks his approval and acceptance uh, that she came for. The hope that she came for has been accomplished as Jesus wills it in his heart and in his mind. And so that's when the woman went home and found her daughter healed. So this is just on the external observations. We see that this is a story of a woman whose daughter was healed. 
But the Bible is not just a, 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 a book of information. The Bible is not just a book of inspiration, how we could be like this woman and, and how we can come to Jesus like this, but it's really about transformation. It's not about information, but transformation. And even though we see a lot of the, the beauty in this healing of the daughter, it's, it's actually a story not of a physical healing, but of a spiritual healing. And so if we look behind the curtain, we see that there's a huge um, transformation going on in this woman's life. And this is what speaks to you and I today. As we come to Christ, the source of all hope, with our very real despair, with our own needs, like this woman had, like I mentioned at first, can we think of the times that we have faced crisis and despair she is so accustomed and aware of her needs that she comes to Jesus. That is our position today too. Sin has rendered you and I in a hopeless situation in life. We have a holy God and we are a sinful people. We are unable to transcend the gap that separates us and God. We are hopeless without him. So what can we do? We can't come to God we need God to come to us. God's love for those who do not deserve it, that is called grace. So we need God's grace, but we have no grounds to merit or earn or deserve God's grace, so we must approach God through faith, not by works, but through faith. That's what this woman is showing us. So behind the scenes, we see this play out completely. Uh, Jesus comes to this town. Just as Jesus comes to this town, Christ has come to the world to offer hope and peace. Uh, Paul says in Titus that grace has appeared, bringing salvation for all mankind. Though we sit in the despair of sin, we have received grace. We have received salvation as grace has appeared in Christ. Paul also says in Ephesians that Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. This is the reality for you and I that Jesus has come to the far and the near. He's come to the Jewish people, but he's also come to the Gentile people. When he says, let the children be fed first, he's not saying never feed those who are outside the household of God. He's saying he came first for the Jews and then for the Gentiles. But his heart is not just for the Jews. His heart is for the whole world. God's heart, God desires that all would reach repentance, that none should perish, but that all would reach repentance. This is the hope that you and I have, that Jesus came to town, that Jesus came to earth. And so then let's see the spiritual working that's going on behind this woman. When she hears Jesus, she comes to Jesus, and she falls at his feet and she begs him, this woman was aware of her sin and her suffering. She heard about the, the hope that had come, that was kindled in her soul when she heard about the works of Jesus. So you and I, this was like a spiritual spark. She might have lived with that oppression for quite a while with no hope. And then it's the news of the hope of change that sparks in her this faith response that realizes, oh wait, my daughter has a chance of being healed? This is a moment that you and I all must come across in our faith where we reckon with our sin and the fact that sin has been dealt with and that that um, freedom has been accomplished for us. That should spark in us a faith response. So she has heard the things of Jesus. Some of us have heard of Jesus and the things that he has done for other people. That he heals people, that he frees people, that he heals the addicted and frees the oppressed and casts out demons and feeds the hungry. We've heard that Jesus does things for other people, but some people have not taken it any further than that. We've heard about the things that Jesus has done, but we haven't come to Jesus. What difference does it make to hear about Jesus? If all this woman did was hear about Jesus, 
and then go about her day. Nothing would have changed. Just hearing what Jesus does for other people doesn't mean that that's also true for you too. This woman wants it to be true for her too. And so you and I can hear the things that Jesus does for other people and still be unmoved. But this woman is moved. Then she comes to him. Some of us come to Jesus in kind of a superficial way. We come to church. We come to the word. We come to prayer. But what does it do to come to Jesus? This woman could have heard of Jesus, come to see the teacher, and if that were all, then still no change in her life. No freedom for her daughter. Some of us have heard of Jesus and come around Jesus, but never come to his feet, never open up to Jesus. And that's what this woman does is she falls at his feet. We have to ask ourselves, have we fallen at Jesus' feet in worship? Don't come to Jesus unless it is to fall at his feet. We don't come to Jesus to consult him for our hopes. We come to Jesus begging for hope. And that's what she does. She begs him. She pleads for her daughter. Have you begged God recently? Have you persisted in prayer? Or do we give up too easily? Just rehearsing the things that are so familiar about what he does, but never begging for it to be true for me. We have to, upon hearing the hope of the gospel, come to the gospel, fall in submission to the God who offers us hope and beg him for that hope. That's what we must do. So in summary, this whole scene that just plays out gives us a picture of repentance. To hear the gospel and come and fall and beg for, for grace, that's repentance. As we think about the baptisms today, this is a crucial element of our faith, is to having been made aware of our sin and the hope of the gospel, that we come and fall at his feet and beg for that grace. Grace which we don't deserve. So then Jesus renders that faith in her through this parable. Um, I got to keep moving on. I could spend, really, I could do the whole sermon on this Seraphonician woman, but I have two other passages that I've got to preach through. Um, but yes, Jesus um, speaks to her in this parable. And uh, let me see, let me see. She replies. And that's when she goes and she finds the evidence of grace. So that's one of the things that I brought up at the beginning. How can you see faith? The title of this passage is called the Syrophoenician woman's faith. Where do we see her faith? The, the word faith is not in this passage. But that's why we have to look for the external clues to see her repentance is the outward working of her faith inwardly being born in her. And that's what Jesus uses this parable to accomplish. And that's where she goes from there and finds her daughter healed. That's how can we see grace? Grace is not tangible, but she sees the evidence of grace. He speaks grace on her saying, for this statement, the demon has left your daughter. And th then she sees the evidence of faith in her life. So you and I, just the same. We, we need to look for the evidence of faith in our life and the evidence of grace that flows from our life. Paul says in Romans that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. He says, with the heart one believes and is justified and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. That's what happens in this woman when she comes with her heart and then professes, yes, Lord, but I need your grace. She is living this out and Paul even further says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame for there's no distinction between Jew and Greek. It's because of this woman, because Jesus came to this woman that we know that the gospel is for the Jews and the Greeks. It is for everyone, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. 
He even quotes Isaiah saying, I have been found by those who did not seek me. I have shown myself to those who did not ask for me. Jesus came to the Jews. He was rejected. And so he came to those who weren't even looking for him, to the Gentiles. But in our despair, that is our clue to look for the source of hope. The fact that we need hope in life is a sign to us that there is a source of hope. So when we encounter despair and crisis in our life, we should not surrender in defeat. We should turn to the source of hope. He came to his own and his own people did not receive him, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And this woman became a child of God that day. When as before, she was but a dog in the household to the children of God. She became a child of God that day. And we too by faith. So now we go to the the deaf man. Jesus heals the deaf man. Let me read this out. Then he returned from the region of Tyre and went through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee in the region of the Decapolis. And they brought to him a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. And they begged him to lay his hands on him. And taking him aside from the crowd privately, he put his fingers into his ears and after spitting, touched his tongue and looking up to heaven, he sighed and said to him, Ephatha, that is, be opened. And his ears were opened, his tongue was released, and he spoke plainly. And Jesus charged them to tell no one. But the more he charged them, the more zealously they proclaimed it. And they were astonished beyond measure, saying, He has done all things well. He even makes the deaf hear and the mute speak. So if we compare the Syrophoenician woman and the deaf man real quick, we see some big differences. Um, This woman heard about Jesus. This man is deaf. He cannot hear about Jesus in the same way that this woman heard about Jesus He can't hear about Jesus. He's deaf. And yet he knows his suffering and his sin. But being deaf, he can't hear about the hope that has come. He's lost at at the interpretation of of others. He's dependent on the interpretation of others. And further, with his speech impediment, he could not even effectively call out for help. He cannot reach out to Jesus. He cannot shout above the crowd and ask for help. He's dependent on others. This is the crisis he lives every day, that he is marginalized among the people as one who cannot hear what's going on and cannot even speak on his own behalf because of his speech impediment. But we see many differences with the way that Jesus interacts with the woman and the way that Jesus interacts with this man. When Jesus healed that woman's daughter, it literally just says, go, the demon has left your daughter. He didn't have to go to the daughter. He didn't have to lay hands on the daughter. He literally responded in his will and it was done. But these people, they come and they ask him to lay your hand on the man. And we see an abundance of these external observations like, okay, Jesus came, they begged him. He took the man aside. He put his fingers in his ears. He spit. He touched his tongue. He looked to heaven. He breathed out a sigh. He spoke this word, ephatha. He went through these seven intentional steps very evidently intentionally to produce this man's healing whereas before he had just willed it in his mind and it was done why we have to ask did Jesus go through all of these steps why does Mark include all of these things in this passage but just like the woman where we see kind of an outward road map of the the scene it looks like just yes this deaf man is healed If we look behind the curtain, there's a a spiritual reality going on at work here behind the scenes. And there's significance to each one of these. 
So, yes, Jesus comes to this uh, predominantly Gentile area. The, this, these people bring a man, maybe this is his friends, they bring him to Jesus, and uh, they beg him to lay their, his, his hand on them. The man hadn't heard of the hope in Christ, but his friends have, and he relies on them to be his ears and to be his mouth. That's why they go to Jesus, they bring him to Jesus, they listen for him, they speak for him. Um, and so Jesus takes him aside. Let's, let's take a look at the differences here. Couldn't Jesus heal this man without putting his fingers in his ears? Yes, Jesus could have healed him. Uh, couldn't Jesus have healed him without touching his tongue? Yes, he could have healed him. But there's an intentionality behind each of these. Just like I mentioned that Jesus spoke to the woman in a parable to enter her worldview, I believe that Jesus was entering into this man's worldview through each of the steps that he was doing. He was speaking his language to a man who was deaf and had a speech impediment. He was contextualizing the gospel to this man in front of him, as only Jesus could do. In a type of sign language, you could say. He takes the man aside from the crowd. Imagine being deaf in a crowd of people. Utter confusion. You don't know what's going on. The crowd, you have no place in the crowd. You can't hear. Jesus takes him aside from the crowd. If you are in that desperate need of hope, but you cannot speak out for help, how can you speak out of the crowd, Jesus takes him aside because Jesus wants to hear him. This man alone is precious in Jesus' eyes who can't speak out above the noise. This would be vulnerable for the man. Imagine this, you're deaf, you depend on other people to hear for you, you depend on people to speak for you, and now you've, Jesus has taken you for a one-on-one -on -one and you're like, Jesus, I can't hear, uh, I can't speak. I depend on my friends, but Jesus takes them aside. Jesus doesn't need those friends to speak for you. He can read your heart. So he takes them aside into this vulnerability, enters into his dilemma, and then Jesus touches his ears. He spits. He touches his tongue. Um, seemingly, this, this kind of looks like a show of sympathy. That Imagine this man kind of gesturing to Jesus, I can't hear, I can't speak. And Jesus says, yes, I know. I put my fingers in your ears. I put my tongue, my mouth on your, ugh. put my finger on your tongue. <laughs> Jesus symbolizes, I know what's going on. I created you. He knows this man. And then he looks up to heaven. Why did Jesus look up to heaven? Yes, he's, he looks up to heaven a lot. He looks to his father. But can't you just imagine that this was a symbol to look up to heaven for the man in front of him? I see your need. Look to heaven. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the maker of heaven and earth. Look to heaven with me. As Jesus looks to heaven, the source of our hope, he sighs with the weight of, of sin that he bears in his compassion. And then Jesus speaks. But it doesn't just say that Jesus spoke out this word. He doesn't say that he speak, speaks to God. He doesn't say that he just speaks it out. He says he speaks to the man, Ephatha, be opened. Imagine speaking to a man that you know he can't hear you. So that, that command was not intended for the man to hear, but it affected his healing because his body responded to the creator. He spoke ephatha, be opened, and his ears opened and his tongue released and he spoke plainly as Jesus commanded him to do. And then he charged them to tell nobody about it, but they went on proclaiming. They zealously proclaimed all the works that Jesus had done so well. So yes, this shows us an amazing physical healing, but it also shows us the spiritual reality going on behind the scenes. That Jesus has the power to speak a command that you, you can't even hear. In our total depravity, when God calls out to you, you can't hear him, but your soul responds. 
He speaks the command that you can't hear. What did it sound like when Jesus saved you? When he called your name and you were dead in sin, unable to respond, you could not, nor would you. But he commands our soul. He could command rocks to sing his praise. He could command bones to come to life. When we can't even speak, he hears us. Romans 8 says, Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. When we can't speak, he still hears us. He's able to sympathize with our weakness. He enters into our worldview. There's abundant grace in Christ. He even hears the words we cannot speak. So there's hope for us in our despair. And then I'll just close with this last point about the crowd, which we preached on a few weeks ago. And uh, we focused a lot. um, I forget who preached here. Um, I was over at the the church in the West Island. And, um, but anyway, it was, we focused a lot on what this looked like for the disciples. But what intrigues me here is what this looked like for the crowd. What did Jesus see in the crowd? So it says, in those days, when again a great crowd had gathered and they had nothing to eat, he called his disciples to him and said to them, I have compassion on the crowd because they have been with me now three days and have nothing to eat and if I send them away hungry to their homes they will faint on the way they can't make it and if I um, and some of them have come from far away well his disciples answered him how can one feed these people with bread here in this desolate place same situation they were in before and he asked them well how many loaves do you have they said seven and he directed the crowd to sit down on the ground. And he took the seven loaves and having given thanks, he broke them and gave them to his disciples to set before the people. And they set them before the crowd. They had a few small fish and having blessed them, he said that these also should be set before them. They ate, they were satisfied. They took up the broken pieces left over, seven whole baskets full. They were about 4,000 people in that crowd. Then Jesus sent them away. Immediately he got in the boat with his disciples and went to Dalmanutha. So we see that God has abundant grace more than we deserve. He has abundant grace when we can't even ask for it. Here we see that God has abundant grace even for things you don't know that you need. Even for the despair you have yet to encounter in your life. Why? Because Jesus has compassion on the crowd. Because if I send them away, they will faint. They've been with me three days. They will not make it on their way. There's no food here. They've come from far away. They will not make it. Jesus, in his foreknowledge, he anticipates their future need, one that they're not even thinking about. They they have come to Jesus. They've been feasting on the bread of life for three days. Um, And Jesus knows. A couple hours, a few days uh, from now, these people aren't going to make it on their way. They will not reach their destination without my divine intervention. Jesus has compassion on their future needs. And so that's where Jesus, that's what drives this, this miracle for Jesus, to multiply the loaves, to multiply the fish like he did before. He's thinking about the future needs of these people who have come to him. That's the abundant grace of God. We have things to be thankful for today that you don't even know you have to be thankful for. Imagine that crowd sitting there. We know in this interaction, he's speaking with his disciples. What are we going to do to feed these people? We don't know that the whole crowd was aware of the situation. They might have been blissfully unaware that there's no more food. But Jesus, with his disciples, says, how are we going to do this? Tells them to sit down, gives the disciples the food, tells them to serve the crowd. The crowd just eats. Yes, maybe the crowd does know that that, that Jesus multiplied the fish and the loaves. But nonetheless, Jesus provides, despite them, he exercises his grace out of compassion. But think about this. Do you think those people who have 
continued on their journey after they left that day and they're on their way home. Do you think Jesus gave them bread that day so that they would be on their way home and realize, oh, I'm so glad that Jesus fed me yesterday so that I could make it to my destination today. Uh, They probably just went home unaware of the work that Jesus did that day to preserve them the next. You know, did Jesus do that so that they would respond and say, oh, wow, that's amazing that Jesus did that yesterday because now I can make it to my destination today. No, but Jesus looks out. He searches your path. He's acquainted with all your ways. He knows you will not make it to your destination without his divine intervention. He is prepared for you for the needs you have yet to encounter, things you don't even know that you have to be thankful for. So let's, let's go with this today. When we face despair in life, we should not despise despair. When we fall short and we realize my object of hope is unattainable because of my sin, well, one thing we could do is try harder, but, but that, will not, that will not attain We cannot approach the throne of God. We cannot approach God's grace by our own efforts. One thing we could do is just ignore our needs. Give it up to fate or universalism. I hope it all works out, you know. So try harder or stop trying. Neither of these will work. But when we see the hope that Christ brings, we must reach out with faith in what we cannot see to lay hold of the grace that we don't deserve. He has abundant grace for every need. So we, we can embrace the crisis. We can embrace the despair because Jesus enters in and provides that grace for us. Jesus, thank you for your abundant grace today. Thank you for um, the truth of your word. God, I pray, though, that you would comfort us with your compassion because our needs are real. They hurt, but help us to look to you. Help us to come to you to fall at your feet and to beg. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We pray in your name. Amen.